You are listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Remember the Sabbath day. I'm just going to say, go ahead, put your finger up. This one's confusing, but we'll just do it because why not? Because it's better if you have all 10 of your fingers up. We'll just move past the Sabbath day one. Number five, honor your mother and your father. Have you ever not done that? Put a finger up. You've ever yelled at your parents, not listened to them? Number six, you shall not murder. Have you ever just straight up killed somebody? No. Yeah. Uh, this, this one, <laughs> yeah. 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 I said I'm not going to yell at you. This is a safe place. If you've murdered someone, you can confess here. No, just kidding. Uh, this is one, when we talk about this in the youth group, the kids are, oh, I never murdered anyone. But Jesus said, well, you've hated someone without any reason. And he says, that's breaking that commandment. So if you've done that, then you got this finger. Maybe you never killed someone, but that's what Jesus says is the heart of that law. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Maybe you've never done that, but Jesus says if you've lusted after somebody, you've committed adultery in your heart. Got to put that finger up. Number eight, you shall not steal. uh, Illegal downloads, lying on your taxes, stuff like that. Got to put the finger up. Or maybe just stealing, just the old-fashioned pickpocket. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You ever lied? There you go. We've all lied. Maybe even tonight. Number ten, you shall not covet. You ever wanted something you shouldn't have or been jealous of someone as part of coveting? There we go. Woo! Now we got the jazz hands, all ten fingers. For every commandment we've broken, we got a finger for it. So that's good. Now, there's 603 other laws of God that we could see if we've broken. But just from these ten, we know that we're kind of terrible at keeping God's commands, both as Christians and as non-Christians. And that's your whole life. Even if you said, if we did just this week, well, maybe you had a really bad week and you broke all Ten Commandments just this week. Maybe, probably at least half of them just in the past week. What about just today? Maybe you had a really bad day and you broke all Ten Commandments just today. Probably broken a few of them just today, all of us, even if we had a really good day. Probably broken a couple of them. So we are terrible at keeping God's commands. We do not keep God's commands. And beyond that, we don't even realize how poorly we don't keep God, or how poorly we do keep God's commands. I think, uh, has anyone ever done the Nielsen TV writing survey and you got to write down all the TV you watch in a week? And we got that a little bit ago and it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Like I watch HGTV more than I should admit. I watch more House Hunters than a grown man should ever watch. And you don't, when you list it all out like that and you see exactly how much TV you're watching, it's kind of embarrassing. And I think if we kept track of our sins the same way and we saw in front of our face, like every time we broke one of God's commands, wow, I break that commandment a lot. We don't a lot of times think about it. And I didn't realize how much HGTV I watched until I had to do the Nielsen rating and actually track it. And again, same with our sin. So what what do we do then though? If we're so bad at keeping, keeping God's laws, what do we do about God's laws as Christians? And God's law for, we, it's kind of simplified, but we could say it's the idea of God has said, do this, so we need to do it. God has said, don't do that, so we need to not do that. It kind of simplified, but it's basically that idea of good and bad, morality. Whatever. What do we do with that as Christians? Because we are terrible at keeping it. And that's what we're going to look at in Romans tonight. In Romans chapter 7, we'll start there. And the, the context here is, we're in chapter 7 of Romans. And this is Paul's essay on salvation. I keep saying that because it kind of lays everything out, what it means to be saved, how that all works theologically, like from God's point of view and our point of view, what do we do in response to that? So it's great. That's what the whole letter is about. And the whole letter is proving that sentence, the just shall live by faith. That's what the whole letter is proving, that one sentence. And to do that, Paul, the human author of Romans, 
the Holy Spirit, God inspired him. Uh, first, to prove that just shall live by faith, he says, how we have no works to stand on. So there's a few chapters at the beginning of Romans. Maybe a lot of times we give up on Romans because it's so intense. It's how terrible you are as a sinner. How many of God's commands you've broken. So that's what Paul did first to show you that you have no works because you're terrible. And then he moves on to, well, that's the bad news. And then the next section is on justification. We covered that a few weeks ago, chapters uh, like 4, 5, end of 3. is about justification. And that's the theological word for how God can see us as innocent of breaking all of His rules when we're actually very guilty. And the reason is because Jesus paid the penalty for us breaking all of God's commands. So now when we accept Jesus' payment, God has uh, chosen to see us as legally innocent because Jesus had paid for all of our sins. That's justification. It's helpful to think of that as a wedding day. It's a one-time thing, and it changes your in- legal status. It doesn't change your internal, you know, the way you think about things necessarily. A wedding day is just a ceremony. And that's a lot of what justification is like. Where the next thing we're wearing these last couple weeks is the idea called sanctification. And that's like the marriage. That's what happens after your justification after God has said you are innocent of all, all your crimes or the penalty has been paid of all the laws you've broken, after that is sanctification. That means the day we are saved is the beginning of our Christian walk and it goes all the way until our death. And sanctification, justification is entirely Jesus. He did all the work for that. We didn't do anything. Sanctification, though, like a marriage, takes a little bit of work and it's getting to know God, getting to know Jesus. And the heart of sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. And we saw in chapter 6, last time we were Sunday nights, it's the idea of being dead to sin. And now that we've been justified, God has declared us innocent of our crimes, even though we're guilty. We're not tricking Him, that's just how it works. When we do that, we say our old self is dead. The part of us who liked to sin and who just wanted to do whatever He wanted to do, we're saying that's dead. And that's what it means to be dead to sin. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But today we're, it's being dead to the law. And that's a kind of whole different thing. So there's, as part of being a Christian, saying who we used to be is dead. And then there's a couple implications that come from that. And that's what we're looking at tonight in Romans. What it means to be not only dead to our sin, but also dead to the law. Dead to God has said, you have to do this. You can't do that. It it's maybe sounds a little controversial, but when we look into it, that's what Paul is saying here, is that we are also dead to the law. But if you think I'm sounding like a heretic, just wait for the whole picture. I'm not saying we can just do whatever we want. We'll, we'll get there. But what, what Paul is saying, what we're, we're going to see, because we're terrible at keeping God's commands, like we just saw, we all had all ten fingers for all the commandments we broke. Because of that, because Jesus died for us, we also consider ourselves dead to the law. And so we'll see that in Romans 7, 1 through 13, how we are dead to the law. So first of all, we need to understand what's the purpose of the law. To understand how we've died to the law as Christians, what is the purpose of the law? And we're going to start at verse 7, because, and then kind of go backwards, because Paul's original audience, the Romans, knew what the law was and what its purpose was. So it kind of does it, The purpose is after. But let's look at the purpose first, then we'll go back and look at what it means to be dead to the law. So what is the purpose of the law? And the law is 613 rules that God gave in the Old Testament, in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the book of law. And God gave all these commands, you do this, you do not do this. And there's 613, the ones we know most are the Ten Commandments, that kind of summarizes all the other ones. So that's God's law. And again, for our intents and purposes, to simplify, it's the idea of do this, don't do this, or morality. So the purpose of the law we're going to see here in Romans is not a path to salvation. That was not God's plan with telling people to do this and not do this. It wasn't if you do enough of these things, you are saved. If you do too many of these bad things, you're not saved. That was not God's purpose. It was not a path to salvation, but it was a mirror to reveal our sin to us. And we're going to see that the law reveals our sin in three ways. First of all, the law reveals our sin 
by defining our sin. So verse 7 of chapter 7 of Romans says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. So the first purpose of the law is to reveal sin by defining it. It tells us what is sinful. And this is very important in our culture today where there's this, this big move in postmodernism to say everything, nothing can be true. Everything is relative. And that includes truth and that includes what's right and what's wrong. And so that's all going to undermine what God has defined as sin. But there's a problem with saying that nothing can be true it's that, well, you're saying that statement is true and nothing else can be true. And so there is truth and there is a right and wrong. And it's what God has said is His law. God's laws reflect Him. He's holy and perfect. And His laws define for us what is sinful and what is not sinful. And He brings up coveting, Paul does here, which is a good example because before I was a Christian, about three years ago, I didn't care at all about coveting. I mean, no one cares about coveting unless you're a Christian, really, or Jewish, I guess, or whatever. I mean, just, I'm just saying culturally, we don't care that much about coveting, about wanting things really bad, because that's really what our culture is built on, the idea that we all want stuff and we have to pursue it, and we say, follow your dreams. So we don't really even care what coveting is until God says, here's what coveting is. And then you say, oh, I covet. Hey, I broke that commandment. And that's what he's saying is the law defines sin for us. It tells us exactly this is sinful, this is wrong, and that's very important. Because then as we go now into verses 12 and 13, or 6, 8 through 11, he says how the law reveals sin by creating in you the desire to sin. Verse 8 through 11, But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law defines sin for us. It tells us what's right and wrong. And it actually reveals, or creates a desire in you to sin, is what he's saying here that we see how deceitful and pervasive our sin is only when we compare it to what God has said is right and wrong. Because culturally we can say whatever we want. We'll, we'll look more into that in a minute. But our sin is so deceitful and so pervasive that it takes advantage of good things. Paul says the law is good. God telling us what's sinful and what's not sinful, that's good. The problem is not with that. Sin is so sinful that it takes advantage of God's good laws, and it makes you want to sin even more. And this is, I mean, we all know this, right? That someone tells you not to do something, and then you want to do it. Or uh, I'm a teacher, and this happened, this is just one thing, I could probably come up with a million things. Uh, a kid was like flicking the light switch on and off. I teach high school, by the way. And uh, I, told, I told him to stop that. And what did he do? This is what kids always do. Flick it one last time. Hey, just to show you're not the boss of me. I'll listen, but you're not the boss. And we all do that. We hear something's wrong, and then we kind of want to do it. Sometimes, not all the time, but then we kind of want to do it. And I think of it like this. You know, have you ever been hungry, and then you ate something, and it made you more hungry? That happens to me a lot. Maybe it doesn't happen to you. But sometimes I get more hungry after eating something. And it's, it's kind of like that, that the sin, our sinful nature, our flesh, the part of us that loves to do whatever we want to do, and not have anyone tell us differently, sees what's wrong and says, hey, let's try that out. And that's another thing the law does. It shows us we're even more sinful than we ever imagined. And then thirdly, the law reveals our sin by condemning our sin. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just as good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So the law condemns us. It tells us that we are sinful. And he says here, the law isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with God's rules. You're bad. Hey, the law's not bad. You're bad. He's saying the law is not a burden. Sin is a burden. 
He's saying the law is a blessing. God telling us what's right and what's wrong, that is a blessing. It's not a burden. And the problem is not with God. It says the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The problem is not with Him. The problem is with us. But then as part of our sinfulness, like I just said, we see something that's sinful and then we want to pursue it. So we say the problem is not with us, but the problem is with God. And we say things like God has unrealistic expectations for people. He knows how people are going to be. Why is he telling them not to do it? So we see we, we turn it on to God and say the problem is with him. And the problem is with us. And like I said, the law is not a path to salvation. You are not saved by doing enough good things. You are not not saved by doing too many bad things. The law is a mirror. And it reflects to you who you are. And this makes me think about, you know, the funhouse mirrors. Hey, right, when you go to the carnival and you can stand in front of whatever mirror you want to make you look the way you want to look. If you want to look really skinny, you stand in front of the mirror that makes you look skinny. If you want to look fat, you stand in front of the mirror that makes you look fat. They even have these in apps today. Like uh, you can get the, what's, I don't know what it's called, but it's one that turns you to make you look old. You take your picture on your phone and then it makes you look old. And there's one that, uh, wait, I don't remember. Whatever. Okay, but there's, you can stand in front of whatever mirror you want to reflect back to you what you want to see. And that's what I'm getting at. And now it's not just mirrors, it's with apps. That's why I was going with the app thing. You've know, got to be hip, right? And we, we, can, we do this culturally as non-Christians and as Christians. We stand in whatever mirror is going to reflect back to us what we want to see. So if you want to be told that it's okay to commit adultery, there's a mirror you can stand in front of that's going to tell you that it's okay. You know, all's fair in love and war, and you got to follow your heart, all this stuff. If you want a mirror that's going to reflect back to you that it's okay to do drugs, you can find a mirror that says that. Hey, it's from the earth, man. If you want a mirror to stand in front of that says it's okay to judge people, you can stand in front of that mirror that will reflect back to you. Hey, you're good. The biggest one is if you want a mirror to tell you that you're a good person, there's tons of mirrors for that, that you can stand in front of whatever mirror, whatever someone is telling you, and you can look back and, hey, yeah, I'm a good person. And there's all sorts of things like that. But if you're not a Christian, you don't follow God, if you feel like you have to stand in front of a mirror that will justify to you what you're doing, you know that, the, that it's wrong. That's what it says in the Bible, that you know the law is written in our hearts, And if you feel like you have to justify something by standing in some sort of mirror to tell you that it's okay, you know that it's wrong. Because God has made you in His image and likeness, and you know that it's wrong. So just because there's a mirror that can reflect back to you what you want to see, doesn't mean that it's the truth. Because you know who does not stand in front of the skinny mirror? Skinny people. Because they're already that way. You know who doesn't stand in front of the mirror or go on the app that makes them look old? Old people, they're already old. If you're feeling like you've got to stand in front of a mirror to justify what you're doing, you're doing the wrong thing. You're not doing what you know you should be doing. And that's why there's all these things telling you it's okay. There's only one mirror that reflects back to you who you truly are. And that's God's law. That's the Bible. That tells you who you really are. It tells you this is wrong and there's no excuse for it. You're standing there with your shame exposed before the perfect mirror of God's law to tell you how sinful you are. And that's what its purpose is. Because if you tr- if you see yourself and not try to justify all the stuff you're doing, and you see yourself for who you truly are, you got to know you're kind of terrible. And then your next thought should be, well, I need a Savior. And that's what Jesus is all about. Because we are terrible, and the law is not to say, follow this, do enough good things, and you're saved. The law is to say, look at yourself, compare yourself to this law, like we did at the beginning. We all broke all Ten Commandments. And look at that and say, how can I possibly save myself on my own? How can I think I can stand before an almighty and perfect God with all that on my account? I need a Savior. And that's the entire purpose of the law. The most, one of the problems, though, of this is the, probably the most common way the Bible is used. I mean, there's lots of ways. But we don't oftentimes use the Bible like that, to look at the Bible and read it and see, how do I compare with Jesus? How do I compare with God's law? A lot of times we look at the Bible and say, how does it support what I already believe? And instead of letting the Bible transform us and the Holy Spirit transform us, we try to transform the Bible to support what we want it to say. You can do that however you want. Take anything out of context 
And you can support anything you want. But Romans is written to Christians, not to non-Christians. A lot of this applies. You know, I love, I've only been a Christian about three years, and to see the, the difference, you know, that, that God has shown me, just I, to connect with the culture like that, the Bible is very relevant to all these things going on. But Romans is written to Christians. And how does the law, again, affect us as Christians? And I think as Christians, we often say, like it says in Galatians, that we have begun in the Spirit, but think we're being perfected in the flesh. And as Christians, we know, hey, we're saved by Jesus, grace and grace alone. I have no right to stand before God. I have no right to talk to God. I have no right to even live with all the terrible things I've done. And we all know that, but we think, well, the law didn't save us at first, but it saves us as we continue. And that's not true. But a lot of times we fall into that. Again, like it says Galatians, we are saved by the Spirit, but think we're being perfected by the flesh. And then the problem is that idea that we, yeah, the law doesn't save us at first, but that's how we continue being saved. Then that we start to, that idea influences our kids and, you know, people who aren't Christians because they see us, you know, they don't read the Bible. They, they see Christians and think, well, Christianity is just about being good and not being bad, and it doesn't really matter. You know, I'm a pretty good person anyway. I see this a lot. You know, I'm a, I teach the youth group here, and I'm a high school teacher, and that's the predominant thing that, well, Christianity is just about doing these things and not doing these things. Because a lot of times we think we're saved by the Spirit, but perfected by the flesh, by being obedient to the law. You know, I just heard the other day a student in school say something about how uh, if you if you swear on the Bible and you lie about it, then you're going to hell. I'm like, well, no, you're not going to hell for that. You're going to hell for lots of things, but not. It's not like God is going to be like, oh, there's the deciding factor. You swore on the Bible and you lied about it. But yeah, that's what we project as Christians sometimes when we think Christianity is about following the law instead of being dead to the law. That it's about being good and not being bad. And we'll get to that in a minute, like how that all works together. But that's not how it is. So the New Testament repeatedly says that the purpose of the law was to bring us to Christ. Not to think we could save ourselves by following it, but so that we could look at it and reflect back on, see our own reflection and see how terribly inadequate we are. And then think, I need a Savior, and the only Savior is Jesus. There's no other Savior in any other religion except yourself. And if you're looking at yourself and how bad you are, how can you save yourself? It's not a path to salvation. It's a mirror to bring us to Jesus. But we're Christians. We know Jesus, right? So now let's go on to the next thing. That's the purpose of the law. It reveals our sin. Now let's look at how we're dead to the law as Christians. This is what Paul is getting at with this. And he talks about this in uh, going backwards now into chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. So first he says, uh, in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? And so first, to set this up, how we're dead to law, if you don't know Jesus, you're under the condemnation of the law. Because he says, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Okay, the law is still being, you know, being a good person, not being a bad person. That has authority over us as long as we live until we get to in a second. And we all know that we're all not good. And so that has the authority over us. In James chapter 2 it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In James, that's in the New Testament. He was reflecting on something from Deuteronomy. So it's Old and New Testament. He's saying, if you've broken one of God's laws, you might as well have broken them all. Because God is perfect, and being imperfect separates us from Him. So if you've broken one law, you might as well have broken them all. And so if you don't know Jesus, you're still under that condemnation that you have broken one of God's laws and you're separated from Him. And culturally, we, we need to get rid of this idea that we're, we're good people or bad people. And I'm a good person. Hey, we're all bad people. 
We're all under God's condemnation. We're all under God's wrath. We are all bound for hell eternally because we are not good people. And this is something that I didn't see until as a Christian. Again, I can stand in front of whatever mirror I want that's going to tell me I'm a pretty good person. And that's what we say, right? I'm a pretty good person. I do good things. But clearly we're not. If you're standing in front of an honest mirror that uh, reflects back to you everything you've ever done that was bad, anything you've ever done to hurt people, anything you've ever said to bring people down and gossip about them and judge them, if everything of that was reflected back to you, there's no way you can say, I'm a pretty good person. And that's very arrogant because you know you're not a good person. What you're saying is, I'm a better person than some people. And that's what I'm a good person is all about. So if you don't know Jesus, you're under that condemnation until death for as long as he lives. But now let's continue. He illustrates this with the concept of marriage, which is helpful to understand this. In verse 2 it says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And so he looks at it from the wife's point of view, and he's building up to how we're dead to the law as Christians. So you're under the law until your sins are paid for by Jesus, until you accept that payment. And like a marriage, if, if you're a wife and you've married your husband, he's your husband until he dies, ideally. He's your husband until he dies. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So the only way out of marriage, biblically, except for some extreme circumstances, is the death of one of the spouses. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So with the picture of marriage, if, if you get remarried and your husband's still alive, and you didn't have like a biblical divorce and all that, and you remarry, then you're an adulteress as long as your husband is still alive. But if your husband dies, you're free to remarry somebody because you're not under the law of your husband. And so, now in verse 4 is where he kind of completes the picture about how we are dead to the law. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So here's the whole picture. It's like we are born married to the law. And we're married to the law until one of us dies, just like in marriage. Until someone dies, the marriage continues. So either the law dies or you die. And then once one of those things die, then you're free to marry another person. And what it says is that because Jesus came and fulfilled the law, if your salvation is in Jesus, the law is dead to you and you're free to marry. You're free to not be under the constriction of the law. You're free to get another husband, in this case, Jesus. It's metaphorical. Don't get, you know, guys, it's all right. We can say we're married to Jesus. We're the bride of Christ, so to speak. Metaphor. Now, so we've... So, wait, where am I going? Okay. Uh, so you're free to remarry because Jesus has put the law to death, so to speak, by fulfilling it. So how does that work? Theologically speaking, how does Jesus dying free us from the law as well? It goes you know, all the way back in eternity where Jesus, before He's even Jesus, the God-man Jesus, He's God the Son, right? In eternity, through all eternity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who exist outside of time and outside of this world, they're God, one God in three persons. So that's God the, the God the Son has always been there. But He left His heavenly throne, His place of exaltation, to leave eternity and come into human history and adds to His divinity, humanity, and becomes fully man and fully God. But it says that Jesus, when He came to, when God the Son came to the earth and took on human flesh as Jesus, that he sets aside his godhood. He put it to the side while he was on the earth so that he could live on this earth as a human being like you and me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't stop being God, but he, he put it to the side, it says. He, he emptied himself. I think it's in Philippians. He emptied himself of his godhood to put it to the side and remain God, but lived as a human. 
like you and me. And he lived under the law, yet without sin. Jesus never broke any of God's laws. And think, you know, Jesus lived as a human through the power of the Holy Spirit, fully man, fully God, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was a bachelor, but he never looked on a woman lustfully. And Jesus was homeless, but he never coveted. Jesus was a child, but he never dishonored his mother and father. Jesus was tempted, but he never went against his father's plan. Jesus was reviled, but never hated in return. Jesus was accused of things he didn't do, but he never lied to get out of it. Jesus perfectly kept God's law. And God's law calls for, the other half of this law besides just do this, don't do that, is what happens if you don't follow God's law? Well, then you make atonement, a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was an animal, an animal without spot or blemish. But an animal cannot pay for the sins of humanity. It covered it for the time. But Jesus was a human, a perfect human, without spot or blemish, who could be the sacrifice once and for all, did not just cover sin, but to pay for sin. Because he is fully man, and lived without ever breaking God's law, but he's also fully God, so he's able to have the authority to forgive sins. And so our sacrifice cannot be good enough to pay for our sins because we are not a spotless, blemishless sacrifice. We have all these sins already on our account, so we cannot pay the penalty for our own sin. But God himself pays that penalty because we can't. And so he lived perfectly under the law, and... He paid the payment for our sins so that we could be connected with God again and be freed and be dead to the law. And Now, sometimes people think, well, maybe Jesus cheated because he's God, right? And it's not really... I mean, if God doesn't sin, that's not a big deal, right? But here's I'm going to use superheroes to illustrate this. And here's, here's what I think is behind that. Jesus did not cheat to never sin. Because sometimes we think Jesus was like Clark Kent. And here's my superhero thing. And now Clark Kent gets into trouble. Can Clark Kent get out of trouble? Yes, he can. Because the only difference between Clark Kent and Superman is Superman wears tights and takes his glasses off. right? Clark Kent is still Superman, and he still has all the powers of Superman. And if we think Jesus cheated to be sinless, we kind of think it's like that, that he's... Really just, you know, he's God underneath. He takes his glasses off. Then he's God. He is God. I mean, this, you know, we can break this down if we look into it too deeply. But he is God, but he set it aside. He wasn't like Clark Kent and Superman underneath. It's like if Clark Kent set his Superman aside and said, I'm going to fight crime as Clark Kent. It's more like that. And don't don't think about it too deeply because it can lead you down a a bad rabbit trail. But what I'm saying is that Jesus... He sets aside his godness. He was still God, but he set that to the side, and he lived without sin, without cheating as well. And so, because he lived perfectly, he was able to pay the price for our sins, and his resurrection proved he defeated sin and death. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we switch places on the cross and our sin was put on Jesus his righteousness was given to us if we accept that and so then in order to accept that we have to say our old self is dead the part of us that just wanted to do whatever we wanted to do that didn't want to listen to God we're saying that part is dead that's what it says in Romans 6 that that person is dead but then we're raised to new life like Jesus was raised to new life and now instead of being spiritually dead we are spiritually alive And if our self is dead, then we're free from the law. Because the law is binding over you until you have died. But since you've died in Christ, so to speak, you're also dead to the law. It's kind of complicated, but that's what it's really... It's about having these two natures as a Christian, our old self and our new self with the Holy Spirit. And if you're not a Christian, all you have is an old self, a flesh that wants to sin and do whatever you want to do. But you're saying that part is dead. And when that, you're saying that part's dead, then you're free from the law. And then you're free. It's not about do this and don't do this. It's about I have new life in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. 
And then we're able to bear fruit to God, like it says at the end of verse 4. And we're able to change through the power of the Holy Spirit. But now here's where we're really getting to, and this is the last point, is, okay, this is, I mean, there's a lot of sort of theological setup here, but how does this, in our Christian life, and our sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, how does this work itself out? And this is, you know, I was praying about this for a week, trying to think, hey, how can this be real, so to speak? So let's read verses 5 and 6, and then look at what it means, how this plays out that we're dead to the law, what that should mean to us as Christians. Verse 5 and 6, Romans chapter 7. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful, passage, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And then he says, we died to the law, we were delivered to it. I mean, that's freedom from slavery language, like the Exodus, right? We were delivered from the law. We are dead to the law, so that we should serve, hey, not do whatever we want, but so that we should serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And so to, to explain this, I thought of a few illustrations, some kind of life scenarios to help. What does this mean to serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter? Well, we have, if you have kids, you have rules for them, probably, and those rules are in your kid's best interest. They're not just random rules to you know, take away all their fun, but it's because you're worried about them getting into some sort of danger, so you give them rules to follow. And you hope they follow them. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Now, is there a way, though, that your kids could follow every single rule you set and never do anything against what you said, but they would be miserable? If all they were concerned about was, I need to please my parents, I need to always do what they say, and never do what they not say, and that's their number one thing they care about, that would grieve you as a parent. I mean, you want your kids to have joy. You want them yeah, you want them to follow the rules, but they're for their own benefit, not to be like burdened under them. And God is a father. And serving under the oldness of the letter, thinking being a Christian is, okay, we can't do this, we can't do this, we have to do this, we have to do this. Yeah, you're following God's laws, but you're not serving in the newness of the Spirit. And just as we would be grieved as parents to see our kids just... Super, all they're concerned about is that God as a father is grieved when his children, all they care about is, I have to do this, have to do this, can't do this. Serve in the newness of the spirit with joy. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It doesn't mean to ignore what God said. It doesn't mean we can just throw the rules out. But it means we follow them in the newness of the Spirit with joy because we have them written in our hearts now. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Also, we can think of this in like a marriage relationship because the same kind of thing. You know, your spouse has things you want or they want you to do with them and for them. And is there a way you could do those things for them but be completely miserable doing it? That is like, well, you might as well not even have done it. You're like uh, Adrian and I, we like going on date night to Sherry's, you know, the restaurant Sherry's, because the music mostly. And it's not like the greatest restaurant, but it's the greatest date night. Okay, right? Sucking up. But now, I know she likes to do that, and once in a while we go do that. You know, we have kids, so we can't always do it every week. But we go and have date night at Sherry's. But could I do that with her and go to Sherry's and have dinner with her, but just be completely miserable that I'm doing it. I don't want to be here. Well, would you be happy? Put you on the spot. No. No supposed to be happy. Hey, you want them to do the things out of love, not because you have to, not to check off a box to say you did it, so now you can't yell at me. Right? It's sometimes our motivation. It's because we love our spouse and we want to do the things they enjoy and enjoy doing it. And serving in the oldness of the, of the letter being just, I have to do this, I can't do that. That's like being in a marriage and doing everything your spouse says, but just to check the box, just so that they can't yell at you. So you can say, hey, I did it, but not with any joy. You might as well not have done it then. 
serving in the newness of the Spirit is because we love God, because He saved us, He forgave us of our sins, and as part of our growth, becoming more like Jesus, we want to do the things He wants us to do, and we don't want to do the things He doesn't want us to do out of joy, not just checking boxes. Biblically, there's the Pharisees and the Sabbath. The Pharisees were very religious. That was... They were like the definition of serve in the oldness of the letter. Because they would study God's laws, all of all 600 some of God's commands memorized so that they wouldn't break the laws. And they were very devout, very religious. And probably the most egregious of their religious things was the Sabbath. And God had given them a blessing. Take a day off. It's the Sabbath. Take a day off. Have, you know, enjoy it. Now the Pharisees serving in the oldness of the letter said, okay, we, we have to remember the Sabbath. We have to take a day off. So let's make sure we remember the Sabbath and come up with a million other rules that's going to take away all the joy of taking a day off. And so you couldn't walk past a certain distance or else you were working. You couldn't rub you know, the wheat in your hands because that was considered work. Instead of the Sabbath being a blessing, it became a burden. And still today, you know, you can hear about in Orthodox Judaism and the, the length they go to to remember the Sabbath that takes all the joys out of it. Like I've heard uh, in Israel, you know, they have the elevators on the Sabbath that never stop. They just keep going up and down because to press the button on the elevator is work. And so they have to have the, the elevator just moves up and down constantly and you get off at your floor, but you can't push the button. But then there's a Gentile elevator where they can press the button on the Sabbath so they'll all run in there and go with the Gentile because it's okay for them to break the rule. Hey, uh, so, I mean, there's that. I saw house hunters. Hey, I watch a lot of house hunters. There was one, it was an Orthodox Jewish guy. I'm not picking on Jewish people, but I'm just saying that, you know, it was on this, they needed to have automatic timers on their lights because on the Sabbath they can't flick the light switch or it's considered work. And so it's serving in the oldness of the letter, being so concerned with, I have to do this, I can't do this, that there's no joy. Hey, what was supposed to be a blessing of taking a day off has become a bigger burden than work days. Because there's more rules attached to it. And serving, again, in the newness of the Spirit, it's all about joy, doing it because we love God, not because we have to do this, we can't do that. It's we have the law written on our hearts and we love Him. Finally, maybe my favorite one from the Bible is with Mary and Martha from uh, Luke chapter 10. And we have two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus goes to their house and he goes with his disciples, and it's this big thing. I mean, you got Mary, Martha, Lazarus was their, was their brother, and all the disciples there. So there's all this commotion going on at the house. Got to get ready for all the people to be there. And you have the one sister, Mary, who Jesus comes to her house, and she sits there and just wants to be with him because she loves Jesus, and she wants to sit at his feet, listen to his teaching, and just be with him. But the other sister, Martha, is doing what we do a lot of times. And, oh, we have to get this done. We have to get this done. I have to, you know, get everything ready. And she tells, she says to Jesus, hey, tell Mary to do something. She should be helping too. And Jesus is very, very tenderly says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part. And we can be so in the oldness of the letter that we don't have time for Jesus when he's at the house. And we think we have to get this done. We, I mean, it, it's, it's not the joy. It's not the newness of the Spirit. And that's, Jesus didn't say, hey, Mary, get up. You need to help. He said, Martha, maybe you should take a break and you should serve in newness of the Spirit. So where are you serving in the oldness of the letter where you think you have to do this? It's not even joyful. You can't do that. And it's not even joyful, but it's a burden. And think about that and pray about that because it's dangerous to have that mentality as we've talked about a little bit because of what it shows to non-Christians that Christianity is just about following rules as long as you're a good person you know God's okay with you that's not Christianity Christianity is we're bad people Jesus paid for our sins so now God is okay with us it's dangerous because of what it shows our kids like we said earlier they get the idea that all Christianity is is doing this not doing that it's dangerous because it's not a good relationship with God you talked about and with the marriage relationship, and you could do everything your spouse tells you to do and have a terrible relationship. And doing everything just because you feel like you have to do it, that's not a good relationship with God. And it's dangerous because it takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on you. And it's not, look how much 
Jesus has done. It's looking at how much I have to do and how much I'm sacrificing to do these things. That's oldness of the, of the letter, the law, not newness of the Spirit. So to conclude, because Jesus has, he died and fulfilled the law, we can consider ourselves as Christians dead to the law. But, now here's a very important part, is Romans 6. If you take that out of context, it's, hey, we can do whatever we want because it's all forgiven. We're not under the law. Romans 6, though, says we're also dead to our sin. And so when you have that together, we're dead to our sin as part of our new self because we've declared our old self dead and united with Jesus. We're dead to our sin. But then we have Romans chapter 7, we're dead to the law. Those two things separate are very dangerous. As if we're only dead to sin and not dead to the law. Did I say that right? Whatever. Yeah. Those things need to be put together. Because if if you only have one or the other, you're just going to do whatever you want. Yeah, that's being dead to the law but not to sin. That's doing whatever you want to do. Just being dead to the law but not dead to your sin. And you're not going to care. But being dead to sin but not being dead to the law says, I have to do this, I have to do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Both of them together, we are dead to our sin and we're dead to our law or to the law. And it's not about we have to do this. I, you know, I have to obey what God said because he said, but it's because I want to, because I know what Jesus has done for me. I know the sacrifice God himself paid to forgive my sins. I would never wanted to pay that sacrifice. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And God himself comes to pay the price because we never wanted to. So we're dead to our, to the law, but also dead to sin. So and sometimes we, you know, there's certain people that could hear this and think, well, then we do whatever we want as Christians, it's all forgiven. That's not at all. Dead to the law, but also dead to sin. So non-Christians, if you don't know Jesus, you're still alive to your sin and you're alive to your law, or to the law. So you're under a condemnation of the law, but you just do whatever you want to anyway. So, but, Okay, like we said, you are not a good person. No one is. Good deeds don't cancel bad deeds. The only way not to be under the condemnation of the law is to be dead to it because it's binding over us as long as we live. And physical death does not mean we've died to the law. The only way to die to the law is to die with Jesus because then you come back with spiritual life. But Christians, it's we never just try harder. We never just do better, be more this. We look at who we are. It's always rooted in our identity. Because under the, under the law, what we do determines who we are. But we're under grace. And under grace, who we are determines what we do. And so we look at who we are in Christ. That we are dead to the law. We are dead to sin. And we've been brought to newness of life through the Holy Spirit. And that tells us, yeah, now we can serve with joy in the newness of the Spirit. But it always comes back to Jesus. Because Jesus, that's what our sanctification is all about. Reading about Jesus, praying to Jesus, learning about Jesus, and being more like Him as you grow in your sanctification as the Holy Spirit works on you. And Jesus is our model as every, for everything as Christians. And He's our model for serving in newness of the Spirit. Because everything He did was in joy. And everything He did is what we should look at. Because Jesus' Father, our Heavenly Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. So how did Jesus serve in the newness of the Spirit? And even His death was done with joy in newness of the Spirit. This says in Hebrews 12.2, To look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus also followed God's laws, but they weren't a burden, they were a blessing. And it was a newness of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, it said, here's what the Messiah had to do. The Messiah had to die to pay for sins. And Jesus didn't look at that and grumble and say, well, okay, I'll I'll do it because I have to. That's part of being the Messiah. It says, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that just for how much you have done for us that we do not deserve, 
we always just want to look at whatever we want to see and have reflected back to us, whatever it is we want to see, and think that we are so good. But we know, God, when we look at your law, what you have said to do and what not to do, we know that we are terrible and we have no right to talk to you right now, to be in prayer to you right now, to read your word, but you've had mercy on us and grace and you sent your son to pay the price so that we could do this, so we could be dead to the law and serve in the newness of the spirit. Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know your son Jesus who's listening or who's here, I pray that you would reflect to them who they truly are, that they would look and see that they're not good people and they need a savior. It's not that they don't do good things, but they don't cancel out the bad things we've done. Father, for, for us Christians, I pray, Holy Spirit, just work in us and make us new and give us joy to serve in the newness of the Spirit because of how much you've done for us, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.